So he left Elijah in despair. He, he, he was running. He spent 40 days going to Mount Horeb. What's the other name for Mount Horeb? Sinai. Sinai uh, where it all started, where the covenant was created. He spent 40 days going. It wasn't really, it isn't really a 40-day journey. But he was spending time in the wilderness like Jesus and Moses. I uh, hope you see all the parallels. And I'll show you some more in this text. Parallels between Moses and Elijah. So we, we saw him run, flee, get away from Jezebel. Ahab, who wants to kill him, he's, he's, he goes 40 days wandering the desert. He ends up at Mount Horeb, uh, the Mount of God, Mount Sinai. And that's where we left him at last week. So we pick up at verse 9. Um, then he came, and this is an interesting translation here. I don't know why English, almost all English translations do this. There he came to a cave. The Hebrew really says the cave. I'm, I'm curious, does any English translation say the cave? I don't, yeah, they all say a cave, unless you have a Jewish translation of, of the Hebrew, because the Hebrew is the cave. Now, the reason that's important, and the reason I wish English translations would do the instead of a, is the Jewish community, and I think, because you see so many parallels here between Elijah and Moses. I think it is the cave. Now, if you want to turn in Exodus to chapter 33, uh, to remind you of a really famous story of Moses at Mount Sinai during the time they stayed at Mount Sinai, during the time they received the covenant, the Ten Commandments and the law. Um, there, in the Jewish community, when you talk about the cave at Mount Horeb, it is a specific cave at Mount Horeb. So look at Exodus 33. Um, let's, start, let's start at verse 17. Start at verse 17 to get the whole paragraph. Thirty-three seventeen, And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. There's an intimacy between Moses and, and God. Verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. Verse 19, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. All caps there. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Verse 20, but, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Mm -hmm. That's a common concept in the Hebrew Bible. We cannot see God. We cannot stand the holiness of God. Um, we cannot see God and live. Which, again, that really makes something new about the New Testament. I used the text yesterday from Hebrews 4. We can boldly approach the throne of grace now because of the work of Jesus Christ. But it's typical in the Hebrew Bible. You can't see God. You can, you, you, our God's a consuming fire, and the holiness of God will, 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 will kill you. You can't stand it. So, um, you know, here's Moses saying, Show me your glory, God. God responds, uh, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Now look at verse 21. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, 
and you shall see my backside or the trail of my glory. But my face you shall not see. Um, so this is where God hid Moses in the cleft of a rock, a cave-like cleft of the rock, because this was Moses' encounter with God. This was the theophany, is the, the is theological term. Theophany is an appearance of God. And this is the, the theophany, theophany that Moses received. By the way, what's your hymn that people love that's based on this text? Rock of Ages cleft for me. You know, it's talking about, again, God's so holy, God's so majestic. If it was not for the work of Christ, we couldn't, we, we, we couldn't even see the face of God, much less approach the throne of grace with boldness, much less have an intimacy with God, much less at one point in the next world receiving what the church calls the beatific vision. We will see God one day. That's part of heaven for us. Um, so I don't think this is any old cave on Mount Sinai. The Jewish community doesn't think this is any old cave on Mount Sinai. Again, look at the parallels between Elijah and Moses. They're going to get clearer. So that's why it should say the cave. And it does in the Hebrew. But English folks get a hold of this and they think the A, what's the difference? Well, there is a difference. This is a specific cave. So there he came to a cave on Mount Sinai. And lodged in it. And behold, the work goes again. What's, going, what's he going to see? God's coming. God's passing by him. So he's in that cleft of the rock that Moses is in. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now notice, he's going to say that twice. Moses, I mean, Elijah is going to answer the same thing twice. What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah said, that's what he repeats twice. I have been very jealous or zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have, have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. So there's Elijah's pity party. He deserves it. He deserves it. Uh, you just don't want to live there, but he deserves it for a period. He thinks he's the only one left, which... He knew that wasn't true. Remember Obadiah? He had a hundred prophets. God's going to tell him a little bit later it's not true too. He thinks he's by himself. He feels lonely. He feels like he's the only one fighting the battle. Um, yeah, and everybody's done terrible things like forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets, and I'm the only one left. I'm the only one standing. Verse 11. And he said, this is... The word of the Lord said, said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. Eugene Peterson translates that, go out and stand at attention because God's getting ready to show up. Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. So here's the theophany. Here's God passing by. Or, or at least it's, the, it's what prepared for the passing by of God, and then God passed by. But this is all the event of God passing by. Behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains. You know, Eugene Peterson said, calls it a hurricane. That works. A great and a strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. 
And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. Again, these are same symbols, same natural occurrences that happened with Moses when Moses was on Mount Sinai creating the covenant with God. Uh, anyways, and after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of what? A low whisper, still small voice is King James, a wind, a soft whisper, I've heard a murmur. The Hebrew there is amazing, and I think it's meant to be unique. Uh, if my English translation has a little textual note, not study note, but textual note, that, that says that it literally is a sound, a thin silence, which is an oxymoron, a silent sound. So I think the mystery here is supposed to be mysterious. Uh, I like still small voice um, because I think part of what's happening here, again, remember the context. Elijah just saw God show up in a spectacular way. On Mount Carmel, right? I mean, spectacular, visible, everybody saw it. I think Mo, but Moses, Elijah's being taught that God doesn't have to work with just the spectacular. God works in the common, the mundane, the quiet. What, what, what God is going to have to explain to Elijah here, he's going to do it in several ways. He has to explain to Elijah I'm still working even though you don't know it. My silence doesn't mean I'm not working. My silence doesn't mean that I'm not doing something. Elijah has to learn that because, you know, he just had Mount Carmel experience. Sometimes it's hard to remember. Jesus said one time, my father is always working. Which I've always taken comfort in that. Because there's times by circumstance you wonder if he's on vacation. Or as Elijah said about the prophet, about Baal, maybe he's relieving himself. Maybe he's on a trip. Maybe he's that's not that's not the God of Israel. He's always working. His silence doesn't mean he's not working. He doesn't just work in the spectacular. So that's why God God's trying to help Elijah out here. Elijah's in a bad place. He's trying to help Elijah out here. So he shows up and whatever this means, uh, a silent. Sound, uh, still small voice as the King James, and that's entered our English language. So that's what Elijah, I guess he hears it. It's hard. How do you hear a silent sound? He, 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 he experiences it, whatever this is, in verse 13. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak. Why is he doing that? You can't look at God. He knows this is God. It's a, it's a symbol of holiness. You, you don't just look at God. God is a consuming fire. So he wraps himself, his face. Uh, some contemporary translations say he, he muffled his face. I'm not sure what that means, but he just, he just hides himself. And he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. He knew that was God passing by. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And again, God is so tender, so gentle, so kind. God should have said, I've already asked you once, Elijah. What are you doing here? 
Why are you here out in the middle of nowhere when there's work to be done? You know, they're still worshiping false gods. They're still supporting false prophets. But God's so tender, he just simply says again, what are you doing here, Elijah? You know, one of the most important spiritual skills is the, the ability to, to self-reflect, the ability to examine ourselves, the, the ability to see us like other people see us, the ability to hear ourselves like other people hear us. Some people are so non-reflective. The whole world knows stuff about them. They don't seem to know. Uh, it's important, you know, it wasn't the Bible, but Socrates was right. An unexamined life is not worth living. So that's why you need somebody in your life that God can use to look at you and say, what in the world are you doing? Um, because sometimes we can justify anything. We can justify anything. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm trying not to say such as say we paid for votes. Yeah, you can, you can justify just about anything if you want to bad enough. And that's why you need, you know, Jesus started out with a small group. Methodists were big in small groups. We called them bands, parts of society. You need somebody in your life that God can use to ask you these hard questions. What are you doing? Why did you do that? Are you sure that makes sense? You know, you, know the, you know the historic Methodist question, right? I hope you do, for those of you that are Methodists. How goes it with your soul? That's what we were supposed to ask each other. Somebody's supposed to ask us every, every week. That was what we, that's what you did in a band meeting, your small group meeting. You know, how goes it with your soul? Now, again, I, some people, if they ask me that, I'd be offended. I've got some people in my life, though, um, some of the ones who are texting me right now. I've got some people in my life that they have the right to ask me, how goes it with your soul? So again, I see it in the New Testament, Paul with Timothy. Make sure you got somebody like that in your life. We call them now um, gracious accountability groups. Uh, bands should never be more than about four or five people. Um, and, you know, if you're interested, there's lots of work out there. Uh, Scott Kisker's book on band is excellent. Um, all the work that Seedbed's doing on bands. Because it's really simple. Seedbed even produced something small where here's the questions you need to ask each other till you really know each other. Then go to this list. But for the start out, you, you need to ask each other these questions. Yeah, you need to have somebody in your life that you have invited in your life, you have granted permission to, people who will listen to you would just be present with you at times, but also can ask the hard questions. I think most people do not have that, which is why making disciples for Christ is so hard in this culture. You can't just make disciples of Christ when you worship with a few hundred other people. You can't even do that in a Sunday school class with 40 people. You can get lots of information that way. Sometimes you can get transformation that way. But transfer, Jesus started this. Transformation usually comes in the small groups where somebody can look at you and say, Elijah, what are you doing? How goes it with your soul? So that's my commercial again. Kiss, kiss, Scott, K-I-S-K-E-R. 
uh, see me. I'll give you some seed bed material and, and a book on bands. One of the things that's bringing revival to the Methodist movement is, is I was at a meeting of 3,000 Methodists recently. They gave out ha- armbands, you know those little plastic things? They gave out bands that said, they gave out bands that said, I'm in a band. <laughs> to, to, to kind of shame other people into doing that. That is so Methodist, so Christian. You know, Jane, you had 12. What was the inner circle of the 12? Three. Peter, James, and John. That's who Jesus took up on Mount Tabor for Transfiguration. Yeah, you got to have the Christian growth. You got you to have that private time. You've got to have that congregational time. And most people do that, but you better have. That's why we have four core values here at Wesson Memorial that we can start paying more attention to. We even have banners that we hang mentioning these core values out here in the circle. Those of you that are Wesley for a while, do you remember? We haven't talked about them a lot because we've been distracted in, in about the last 18 months. Prayer, worship, small groups, hands-on mission. Not just write, I love it when you write checks, but I really like it when you go in hands-on mission. You know, so those are our four core values. There's small groups in there. So um, we've been saying for quite a while that the next year we're going to really be focusing on small groups. Then we've been distracted for 18 months. But we'll start, again, focusing on small groups. Uh, I've been a part of a small group for 38 years. Now, my groups have changed. My groups have changed. They've morphed. But I don't even... I, I, would, I would even say I would probably not be standing here today. You know, like... 40% of people who go in the ministry this year will not be in ministry in a decade. That's the statistics. So if you want to ask how can you do it 38 years, that's how I've done it. I've stayed in a small group, a gracious accountability group. Some of these people who are texting me right now, um, that, that, that makeup has changed. One of the best groups I had one time was me, a Quaker pastor, a Wesleyan pastor, and a Baptist pastor. Because we couldn't ne- could talk about my bishop. They didn't know my bishop. So we had to talk about serious stuff. Spirituality. How goes it with your soul? Yeah, I mean, I'm just saying that, say, for me, it's been enough of a priority that I've made it happen for 38 years. So if you're out there being a Lone Ranger, that's not a biblical model. And it's not an effective model. It's not a fruitful model. That's why around here we have unity groups, journey groups. You know, if we, if we revisit it, we may say, why can't we just name all of them life groups or something? And, of course, once a unity group's been around for a while, I've seen some unity groups, because we have some unity groups that have been together for 20 years, and some of them are amazing. Some have just turned into study groups again. Again, what you want is transformation, not just information. If you're just after information, go Google it. You can get information from Googling it. But in the Christian faith... There's something about a smaller group around the Word of God going deep in each other's life that makes discipleship happen. Anyway, I'll stop my commercial. Um, but think about that. You know, here's, I, I wish, I, I, you know, God shows up and does it for Elijah. Because he's out here, by, he, notice he even left his servant back at Beersheba. We all need somebody, and God. God usually, most of the time God speaks to me, He speaks to me, either He speaks to me primarily through the Word, secondarily through other people. Um, 
You know, God doesn't tend to send me emails or text messages. <laughs> now, sometimes it is a still small voice, but oftentimes God speaks to us through other people. If we're keeping all people at arm's length, there's a spiritual issue with that. Anyway, I'm glad God showed up to tell Elijah, ask Elijah for the second time, what are you doing here, Elijah? Verse 14, and again, Elijah just repeats himself. He says, again, I have been very jealous, zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Now, the God's, go, God's going to give him a new task. And again, God's being so gentle with Elijah. God would have been, it would have been uh, fair for God to have said, Elijah, I heard you the first time. But he doesn't. He just listens to Elijah say the exact same thing again. You know, I even I only am left, and they want to kill me. Now, here comes his new task. And there's a lot to learn from this. Verse 15, And the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. That's probably up, uh, if you know where Damascus is, it's present-day Syria. It's kind of to the east of the Jordan. It's probably where he started out at. Uh, the brook Cherith, that would be in that area. So he says, go return your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. That's interesting, another country. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. Notice, Syria, Israel, those who's being anointed here, um, Anyway, these are the people being anointed. Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shall anoint to be king of Israel. And Elisha, you know that name, the son of Shepad of Abel-Meholah. If you've ever been to Beit Sheen in Israel, that's near this place. Um, so Elisha, you shall anoint to be a prophet in your place. So he's telling Elijah to go anoint three people. Hazael, king over Syria. Um, Jehu, king over Israel. And Elisha, his, to take his place to be the new prophet. Um, and then he says in verse 17, we'll go back, I'll, I'll tell you why this is happening. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha be put to death. Um, that's just a Bible way of saying sin will be punished. Sin will be punished. Either you have to take that punishment or Jesus takes it for you in a New Testament sense. But sin has to be punished. A righteous God cannot just let you off the hook. Uh, a holy, righteous God cannot just ignore our sin. You either have to bear the penalty or the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world will bear the penalty. Now, the reason he says that is because of the three people he just, he just told Elijah to anoint. Now, if you kept on reading... And I know that people don't hang out in 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, because it feels so much like history. But it's good stuff. These three that you just saw anointed, or Elijah's being told to be anointed. You've got Hazael, you've got Jehu, and then you've got Elisha. They are the three that will finish the work of ridding the land of Baal worship, at least for the time being. Elijah doesn't finish the work. Elijah doesn't finish the work. 
And, you know, he's and certainly right here, he's run away. He's out in the middle of nowhere. He doesn't want to finish the work. But God says there's still work to be done. Ahab and Jezebel still on the throne. They are still promoting Baal worship. So anoint these people because there's still work to be done. Um, we think Elijah knows what's going on here. The interesting thing is he does go straight after this text. He goes straight and anoints Elisha. As far as I know, there's no evidence in the Bible he actually goes and anoints those other two. Elijah's one of the greatest prophets. That's why in Hebrew thinking, Moses and Elijah go together. Both of them were not perfect. Both of them were not perfect. Um, anyway, so this is the task. You know, God is gently saying, you got work to do, Elijah. You know, have your pity party, but don't live there. You've got to go back. You've got work to do. And then notice, after he's given the task, notice the promise. Verse 18. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel. All the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So what's he saying to Elijah here that Elijah needed to, to know? Yeah, you're not alone. I've left 7,000. I have 7,000 people that have not bowed their knee to Baal. Now, what's really important about that besides encouraging Elijah, what's really important about that, um, not just help Elijah deal with his loneliness, but what's really important there. Um, and it, it, it should be on the evening news tonight. God has always left a remnant of the people of Israel. So Hitler should have been told that. Hamas needs to be told that. Anybody else that thinks they're going to destroy Israel needs to be told that. Uh, there's a promise throughout the Hebrew Bible. It's all over Isaiah. And that is the theological term, the remnant. God will always leave a remnant. Because he's made certain promises to Israel. He's made promises to all of us through Israel. So he's not just taking care of Elijah's loneliness here. Uh, this is a strong Bible promise. God says, I always leave a remnant. You may think that, you know, the world's going to hell in the handbasket. Nobody believes anymore. Nobody follows God anymore. You know, you may, give, you may have that same pity party that Elijah does. You know, um, the people have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets. And God has to say, I always have a remnant. You know, it's, it was amazing both in Cuba and China. When we finally got let back in, and we assumed the Christian community would have just died out in Cuba and China, guess what we found? They were thriving. In a different way, as a persecuted church, underground, they were thriving. You know, we thought we were going to go back in and start the Christian church again in Cuba, particularly in Cuba. Uh, Cuba, when, when they were opened up, they were, they were under our bishop in Florida. We, we were going to go back and create the church anew in Cuba because we thought surely under communism when it was all illegal and communism's atheistic, yeah, you know, we'd, we'd have to go back and create the church anew. God always has a remnant. God always has a remnant. Um, so this is not just encouragement for Elijah, which it is, but it should be for all of us. So, Elijah, I guess, decides, okay, 
My pity party's coming to an end. I've got a task to do. I'm going to go back and do what I need to do. And here's how it ends. Look at verse 19. This is the call of Elisha. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. What does that tell us about the economic condition of Elisha? He's wealthy. He's, leaving, he's going to be asked to really leave something behind. Plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. By the way, you'd have to have other human beings helping with that one. He, he's, 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 got, he's coming for some wealth here. Was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. So he's with the 12th uh, set of, of oxen. He was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. That was sort of saying, I'm a prophet and I'm claiming you to, to follow in my footsteps. And, Eli- and Elisha knew what was going on here. Verse 20, look what Elisha does. And he left the oxen and he ran after Elijah. So yeah, I mean, Elisha gets it. He's being called to be the assistant. This is almost, again, think about Moses. Who is, who is Moses' Elisha? Joshua. Joshua. Yeah, there's actually one word here in the Hebrew that's only used in regards to the Joshua-Moses relationship. So here's this new Moses getting a new Joshua, and this Joshua's eager, almost. almost. Well, he is eager. He left his ox and he ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I'll follow you. Um, Hebrew here is strange. We don't quite know exactly what Elijah's saying. First part's not hard. Elijah does say, okay, 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 go, go kiss your mother and father. But then he says, my English translation is, for what have I done to you? I'm not sure. I'm curious. Any other English translation that tries to help you out on that Hebrew, instead of go back again for what have I done to you, any? One says, but think about what I've done to you. Okay, go say goodbye to mommy and daddy. Because think about in the New Testament. Jesus sort of told people, follow now. And Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting here. We, we don't, I mean, Elisha looks pretty good. He's not 100% though. But, he, but I, I'm glad he went back to kiss his mother and dad goodbye. Um, hope he didn't linger long though. He's being called. And he said to him, go back again for, I have do- what, for what have I done to you? Go back and think about what I've done to you. Um, evidently you need a few more minutes to think about this one. Verse 21, and he, Elisha, returned from following him, took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them. So he took the wooden parts and he built a fire and he sacrificed the, the oxen built a fire, and then he boiled the flesh. It does not sound tempting to me. He boiled the flesh with the yokes of the oxen, the wood that made the fire, and he gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and he went after Elijah and assisted him. Same word that's used for Joshua with Moses. He went after to become Elijah's assistant. So he's, um, he's leaving. He's, he's, he's answering the call. He's throwing a party first. Maybe a farewell party, farewell feast. Um, but I think you also see here that he's burning his work stuff. Yeah, He's accepting a new vocation. Um, you know, in the Christian tradition, um, 
particular, well, let me give this illustration. In the monastic world, uh, and Roman Catholics still do this with their priest, when you accept ordination, when you, let's stay with the monastic world. When you enter a monastery, it's a powerful service if you've never seen a monk be made. Uh, there's a service in the midst of the monastery, a worship service. When you're making your final pledge to be part of that community, which doesn't come quickly, you have stages, but when you make your final profession, and it's the final making you a full monastic monk, member of the community, you lay out flat in front of the abbot. They put a burial pall on top of you. You might have laid down as Jeffrey Scott Patterson. My monastic name was John Patrick. You may lay down as Jeffrey Scott Patterson. You get up with a new name. You might have been John when you laid down. You'd be Brother Paul when you get up. The old really passes away. One of the things that they do in the Benedictine tradition, because they've been doing this since 6th century, they take your street clothes and they're hung in a special place in a closet, which sort of says you're free to leave. Now, we may not let you back. I've seen that happen. We let you back on probation. But you're free to leave. You spent three years making this decision, but, you know, we're not going to tie you in the basement of the monastery. You're free to leave. So your clothes are in a special closet, your street clothes. You receive the monastic habit. And you receive a new, and it is very much a new life. When you accept that new vocation, you have to let go of the old vocation. Um, you know, I, I, when Luther came along and created the Protestant Reformation, he said all vocations are equal. They all have to be offered to God, whether you or dishwasher, or a landscaper. All vocations need to be offered to God. But they need to be offered to God, whatever your vocation is, needs to be, it needs to be offered to God with as much finality as what you see Elisha doing here. Don't say, okay, God, I accept my new calling to live for you, to serve you, to be a living sacrifice, but I'm going to be half yours and half somebody else's. You can't do it that way. That's why all of this through the Bible and through Christian tradition, um, you know, Jesus, we don't like to preach on it. Jesus talked about you leaving your father and your mother, your sisters, your brothers. Jesus made a long list. Uh, if you're a monk, by the way, you leave your parents and your family and you see them not on a regular basis. They, will, they can, you know, there are times they come and visit. But, um, yeah, some, somehow we, we need to do a little, again, we've got to work on making disciples of Jesus Christ in this culture. We know how to make church members, but we know how to make disciples. We've got to learn. That's where the small groups come in. That's where the dedication comes in, the consecration. That's where we have to help people understand you cannot have just a religious department of your life that doesn't touch your entertainment, your finances, your relationship. You can't do that. Um, well, we all do that, but you need to not do that. You need to kind of grow in grace and every day make a full and fuller consecration. That's why we don't quite know here if Elijah was completely thrilled with Elisha. He, he, he answered the call. He's a little slow on the uptake, but he answered the call. Uh, so that's why we can't quite tell, particularly from the Hebrew, go, go on, do this, but think about what I'm calling you to do. We're not sure if he's being... Um, Completely positive at that point with Elijah. 
Anyway, that's a good place to stop. Questions, comments, reflections. God is salvation, I think. You may have some study notes. Check me on that. I think it's God is salvation or God saves. I believe what it is. And I think I told... Go ahead. The other two people that God instructed them to anoint, is there any mention of those folks? Yeah, and they do it. They, they do the work against Ahab. And they help cleanse the land of... They keep reading. Yeah, Jehu and Haziel both mentioned. We still have an account of Elijah actually anointing them. Um, and this might have not be written down, but because they do the task. That's, why we, that's the only reason we know that's what they're anointing for, because that's what they do. They finish the work. So that's mentioned later on. Yeah. Yeah, when you think about Elijah, I think I've told you, our intern... Uh, who's amazing. His parents are Korean, so every one of the kids is named El something else. He's Eli, E-L-L-I. L is Hebrew for God, and the rest of the name is Korean for something spiritual. So all four kids are E-L something. So, um, you know, by the way, I'll make another plug which I tried with my kids and somewhat successful. You, you know, for those of us, particularly those of us that baptize infants, um, the, we don't really christen anymore. The christening was the given of your Christian names at baptism. Now, usually by the time somebody brings me a baby, they've been calling that child something for eight months. So that child has the name long before he was brought to me. Um, we, but that's why, though, the christening was the giving of the name at baptism. That's why baptisms like circumcision uh, should be done quickly. Um, <laughs> but you, in this world, you just name the kids, and y'all, y'all don't know about the christening. But we still call your names, not your family name, but we still call your other names what? Christian names. Your Christian names. Now, I've done some baptizing, and usually... When I baptize, we only baptize using Christian names. Jeffrey Scott, Molly Scott, um, uh, Nora Evelyn. You know, sometimes, I'm not sure people know what I'm doing there, but you're, until 1989, when I took the child, I would ask, what name do you give this child? And I'm sure Methodists thought that was just helping the pastor's memory. But that, that's, that's not what was going on there. That was the christening. We, we quit that in 1991 because you have named that child long before you bring them to us. Uh, but I do try to say to parents, help me out on this one. If they're going to be Christian names, help me out on this one. I used to, it just, we have a young couple visiting this church now. They were here last night and came for the Holiness and Healing Service. One child, they na- they're devout Christians. One child they named Simon Peter. The other child, which is a girl, they named Anna Drew. Because who was Simon Peter's brother? Andrew. Yeah, we used to do that. Um, you know, I've given up on trying to tell people to have Christian names that sort of are. Yeah, Quentin. One year when I was in India, I had gone with an indigenous pastor, and we, this was 